0: Hello Grace Family! As we gather today to worship, we want to be expectant for God to speak to us and just aware that the Holy Spirit is always moving and at work. And we want to be mindful of this God we love and serve and praising him for who he is, a God who is incredibly gracious and rich in mercy, is kind and near to us and full of peace. And he's our refuge and he's forgiving. And ultimately, it's incredible that this great God wants to have an intimate relationship with us. So we want to just draw near to him now in worship and ask that he would then also draw near to us. open in a word of prayer father we thank you that you are indeed this god who sees us and knows us and loves us and wants intimate relationship with us we ask that you would draw near to us now that you would meet us in this time of worship that we would become just more aware of your presence and your love and your grace we thank you that you are a god who is rich in mercy and that you are kind to us and that you are always at work So, Father, we just ask that we would have you moving and working even now in this time today. We pray this in your name. Amen.
1: When peace like a river, my way. When
0: So in our passage today, we'll be looking at how we've been saved by grace in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. So let's read together. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature And following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages, he might, sh- might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord.
2: So today we continue our series in Ephesians, and we finally move on to chapter 2. And today we look at one of, I think, the most profound and powerful expressions of the gospel in all of Scripture. Certainly a passage that has one of the most famous verses, verse 8, By grace you have been saved through faith. So we're going to take two weeks uh, to look at this great passage. Today we'll look at verses 1 through 7, and then next week we'll look at verses 8 through 10. So our passage today, 1-7, through seven, breaks down into two sections. First, verse 1-3, through three, which begins with the words, As for you, and articulates our life before God. And then in verse 4, it shifts with these two great words, But God. And we hear what God has done for us in Christ. So we're going to walk through this today. First, as for you, and then but God. And I just want us to be reminded of the gospel. I mean, I want us to be reminded of what our spiritual state was before God rescued us and be reminded of people in the world and and what the spiritual state is apart from God. And also be reminded of what God has done for us so that we would be left with a sense of profound gratitude, relief, joy in the reality that we live in now because of what God has done for us by His sheer grace. So I know some of these will be very familiar truths, but let's be reminded so that we might walk away today with a sense of gratitude and joy, regardless of what our outward circumstances are. All right. So it starts in verse one, as for you. And Paul gives us this description of our lives without God, our lives before God. And these three verses are, are some of the most succinct but some of the most profound descriptions of life outside of God. I mean, they are, they're devastating in, in, their, in what they're communicating, but they're also so accurate and so poignant to the reality of life without God. Very insightful. So let's, let's take a look. Uh, Paul starts with this very shocking image in verse 1. As for you, you are dead in your sins and transgressions in which you used to walk. So he gives us a picture of people who are dead but are walking. A picture of the walking dead. I, I think our culture has our been fascinated with the walking dead. There's all these TV shows in the last decade or so that, that have popped up about the walking dead. And Paul's saying that that's an image of what your spiritual reality was before God. You were dead. Now the reality is you were walking. You are alive to certain things. You may have been alive to friends. You may have been alive to money. You may have been alive to sports or to literature. You were alive to a lot of things, but you were dead to the most important reality of God of all, which is God. You were dead to the true and living God, and you were utterly helpless and powerless to change that situation. You weren't, you know, sleepy or you weren't injured. No, you were dead. You needed someone to come alongside and wake you up and and give you life, which of course is what God does. So this picture of the walking dead, and Paul goes on to say there's a complex network of forces that were working together in your life to create this walking death. Three forces in particular. First, your own sins. Secondly, the ways of the world. And third, the devil himself. The evil trinity, we might call them. And so I want to just walk through these briefly and how Paul articulates each one. So first he talks about the sin in our lives. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And those two words together, transgressions and sins, points to both the fact that our sin involves conscious, deliberate actions that we take, like things that we do that are against God's law, but also it talks about just the stuff inside of our hearts. It's not just that we're good people who happen to to do bad things, but there's something fundamentally broken inside that then leaks out in behaviors and actions. That's what transgressions and sins is all about. Uh, In verse 3, he actually goes on to give us more insight into our sin, where it says, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. He talks about the flesh, and in Paul's theology, the flesh is that that independent part of us, that part of, in, in our core that wants to live independently of God, that really wants to be God, that wants to decide for ourselves what is right or wrong, that wants to call the shots. So it's that part of us that we inherited from Adam and Eve who, rather than choose to trust and obey God, wanted to you know be like God and, and decide for themselves. And that's this inner core that, that makes up our sinful nature. We want to do things the way we want. And with that flesh, Paul says, comes... These desires that we have, the flesh has its own desires. And we think that if I pursue these desires on my own, that's what's going to lead to freedom. That's what's going to lead to satisfaction in life. But the great irony is that actually leads us to becoming enslaved to those very desires. He describes this as gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires, literally doing its will in the Greek. Your flesh has a will. And guess what? You do it. So, these desires that you think will bring freedom actually end up enslaving you and wreaking havoc in your life. So, you get caught up in your own sin and transgressions, thinking it'll bring you freedom. Ironically, you become enslaved and stuck in the very things that you thought would give you life. Sin becomes your master, essentially, is what Paul's saying here. So, that's the first factor at work in our lives before God our own sin and transgressions. But that's not where it stops. Paul goes on to talk about another factor, which is is what he calls the ways of the world. Verse 2, your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Here Paul's saying, you know, there's something about sin in this world that's bigger than just your own personal choices and dysfunction. You actually were part of a world system that had its own ways in place. Meaning, there's this world system out there that's organized apart from God, and it has its own values and priorities, its own culture, and that's just kind of part of the air that you were breathing before you came to know God. I mean, that's that like that was the water you were swimming in, and you didn't even know it. You just went along with it. It's just all that you knew. But there's this system that was bigger than you, that you were a part of, that kept you from God. So. I could give a ton of examples, but let me give you one example of, of the ways of the world of a system in place. So in our you know culture here in Orange County, I would say we live in a highly sexualized culture and there's a whole system built around that sexualized culture. So there's all these messages, there's all these values that we're constantly receiving that are in a sort of a systematic way, training men to objectify women and training women to find their value purely in their physical attractiveness to men and maybe even to other women. And it's a system. It's just, it's just kind of the way things happen. It's part of the air that we're breathing. so you think about like a, a young teenage man entering into this worldly system who has his own personal sin and, and temptations that he has to face. But that's not all there is. Now he's entering into a system that really is stacked against him when it comes to pursuing sexual purity in his life as a young man. Or think of a young woman, again, who's going to have her own identity questions and issues, but she's walking into a system, a way that the world works that is stacked against her. It's, it's bigger than just our own personal decisions. It's, it's part of a larger network a larger system of thought that's a part of the ways of this world. So, you have our own personal sin, you have the ways of the world, and if that wasn't enough, Paul adds a third one in verse 2, when you fall, the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, he's talking about Satan, So he's saying not only does the world have its own system, but behind that worldly system, there are these dark spiritual forces at work, spiritual beings at work, ultimately headed up by Satan himself. And this is becoming an increasingly unpopular um, idea, but Jesus, Peter, Paul, they're all agreed that that these spiritual beings are real uh, and they are sinister and they are sophisticated and they are opposed to God's work in the world, and they are what ultimately is behind the ways of the world. And so our little worldly cultures and values and systems, underneath those, there are these spiritual strongholds caused by these spiritual beings that are leading people to temptation and leading them away from the truth. You think about the the sexualized culture that I mentioned. That's just not a worldly thing. That is a spiritual stronghold in our culture that has spiritual beings behind it. Paul's saying, in your former life before God, man, you were, you were caught up in all of that. All right. So this devastating diagnosis of life before God, enslavement to our own personal sin, caught up in a worldly system and ultimately caught up and under the control, under the influence of stark spiritual forces in this world. And if that wasn't enough, Paul caps it off with a punctuation mark in verse 3. Here's how he ends the description. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. All those things come together that make us these people who are deserving of, he means, God's wrath. And what God's wrath is, is just God's consistent desire to oppose evil and sin. His, His consistent good desire to fight evil, and sin in all of its forms. And so that puts us on a collision course with God's judgment, with His wrath. So it is just a devastating description of life without God. We are the walking dead, Paul says, headed towards a catastrophe and absolutely helpless, absolutely powerless to change that situation. And then in verse 4, we finally get the turn of this passage with these two two of the most hopeful and refreshing words we could ever hear, especially in light of what we've just heard. Verse four, but God. (laughs) Literally in the Greek, that's how that verse starts. But God. Helpless, hopeless, powerless, but God. And Paul goes on in verses four to seven to describe the gospel. What God has chosen to do for us out of his sheer grace. And Paul here articulates three things. First, what God's heart for us is. Second, what God has done for us. And then third, why God has done it. So let me walk you through these briefly. So first, he starts with God's heart for us. Look at this. But God, and the, the original translation starts with who is rich in mercy. He looks into God's heart and says, God has a heart that is full of mercy. And mercy in Scripture means having compassion for people who are suffering, who are, who are broken, who are poor. Uh, mercy is what the good Samaritan showed the man who was you know, beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. He had, he had mercy. Mercy is what in the, the prodigal son story the father feels for his son as he sees his son coming back you know, uh, in, in rags and, and broken. He, he has this heart of mercy. And Paul is saying, God looked at our spiritual state of helplessness, hopelessness, and his heart felt great mercy for us. There's something else in God's heart, verse four, because of his great love for us. I love this, that he says, God, even when we were in that state, God loved us. He had a love for us, even when we were in that state. And of course, it's his love that then, moved him to do what he does for us and so let's look at that second he moves on to talk about what has god done for us and here's the essence of what god has done for us in these verses he has united us to the person of christ that's the heart of what paul says god has united us to the heart uh, to the person of christ and we looked at this a couple weeks ago that we are now in christ and paul is saying those same things now in this passage And what's great is Paul actually makes up three words, three Greek words. The first one is he made us alive with Christ. Made us alive with is all one word. It's a made-up word. Made us alive uh, with Christ, raised us up with Christ, and then seated us in the heavenly realms in Christ. All of this is happening with and in Christ. So let's first think about what did God do for Jesus himself? Okay, Jesus lived. And then he was crucified, and he, was, he died, and he was buried in a tomb. And he was laying in a tomb, right, lifeless, powerless. And what did God do? God, by his power, made him alive and raised him up, and then at the ascension, then raised him to heaven and, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And Paul here is saying what God did for Jesus physically, God has now done for us spiritually, because we are now in Christ, right? So, first, God made us alive with Christ. What did God do is when we were dead, when we were unresponsive spiritually, God woke us up. He gave us spiritual life, to use Jesus' metaphor. We were born again. He put His Spirit in us and made us alive spiritually, so we begin to be alive to Him. And God raised us up with Christ. He raised us up Now, He didn't give us a physical resurrection like Jesus, but He's raised us up spiritually. He's raised us up to a new way of life that we no longer have to live according to our sin, according to the world, under the dominion of Satan. No, He's raised us up to a new way of living where we live for righteousness. We live for God. We live for God's kingdom. And then He seated us, really interesting idea here, He seated us in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? last time I checked, we were still walking around here on earth. I think what he's saying is this is now our spiritual position, okay, because we're in Christ. So right now, Jesus is seated in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, right? That's what Scripture says. And that is his position before God is now our spiritual position with God because we are in Christ. We're united to Christ. So that is our position before God. It is no longer a position of judgment, of condemnation, of guilt, and shame. But no, we stand in the place of highest privilege and honor at the right hand of the Father because we are in Christ. So we are privileged, uh, forgiven children of God in Christ. All right, so we're united to Jesus. We've been, we've been made alive. We've been raised up. We've been seated with Him in the heavenly realms. We were dead, and now we're alive. That's what God has done. And then the third thing Paul says is, why has God done it? Um, why did God do this? And I don't know about you, this is all such good news. You're like, what's the catch? What's, what's God's angle here? Um, and actually, I think this is the best news of all. Uh, verse 7, why did he do it? In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I want to just encourage you. That, that is a verse to reflect on all week. Why did God do this? Uh, he did it in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For me, this is actually the best news of this whole passage. Most of us have memorized verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's beautiful. I actually think this verse is the most hopeful verse in the whole passage. Let me break it down. God has done all this so that in the coming ages, meaning in the future ages, on and on into eternity, God is going to do something in the future for us. He's done this so that He can do this in the future. What is it? He wants to express His grace and kindness to us for all eternity. And He wants to do that according to His incomparable riches. He has all these riches that He can draw from to express His grace and and kindness to us for all eternity. That's why he did it. So let me give you just a, like an analogy of, of what I think Paul is saying here. So I want you to imagine um, that you've been just through like a really hard time, the worst time in your life. Really, you've experienced loss or just challenges or brokenness and you might be in that season right now, but you've, you've gone through something. And now what, here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine your richest friends like whatever friends have the most money, and they've got lots of money. What if your richest friends came alongside you and said, "Hey, we know this has been such a hard time, and we've been thinking and praying, and you know, we just want to bless you out of the abundance of our riches, and so we're going to just set you off on a, on a month away, and and we're just going to we're we're going to spare no expense." Just to spoil you and bless you, and you're going to spend a week in Europe. You're going to spend a week in Hawaii. You'll spend a week here. You'll spend a week there. Um, but we just want to refresh you. We want to encourage you. We want to give you a time of just just joy and satisfaction. And we will spare no expense. Every experience, all the food, all you name it, the travel, it, it's all going to be there, just to express our our love for you in our in our desire to refresh you, okay? Just imagine if you received that gift. Now imagine God who in this passage, he is the richest being in the universe. And what he's going to do is spend eternity using his riches to express his grace and kindness to us. That is our future. That's why God's saved us so that he can do that for us in the future. And imagine the kind of creativity God has and the kind of resources God has available to him in order to express his grace and kindness to us. And the great thing is when he does that, we, we benefit obviously so immensely, but he also, he gets the glory because we're going to respond in praise and gratitude. So in the end, it'll all reflect back on him. And so everybody wins in the end in that way. So can you think of a more opposite trajectory? Verse 3 ends with, we were deserving and destined for wrath, to verse 7, which is, we are no longer children of wrath. We are children who are destined to be spoiled rotten by their their good and gracious Father for all eternity in heaven, and then heaven's in, in the new earth. What an amazing trajectory we have in our lives. Okay. So this is the gospel. As for you, but God and he has done it. He has done what we couldn't do for ourselves and he has done it as verse 5 says. It is by grace you've been saved. This is all an act of sheer grace. It is the gracious initiative of God. And so I just leave you with that that theme of grace. And so In a time where so many of us are experiencing life as challenging and disruptive and hard and unsettling, I just want to encourage us to to ask the question, what would it look like to wake up every day just reminded, reminded of this grace, stepping into this grace every day and knowing that underneath the challenges and the confusion is a deeper reality of what God has done for me and setting my life on this wildly different trajectory with this insanely wonderful future ahead of me, all by His sheer grace. How can I live today in light of that grace?
3: Well, there are so many implications to the passage we've been looking at today, but this week I've been thinking about all this, and there's been one thing that has kept coming back to me, and I just want to share it with you today. It is inspired by the verses that immediately follow the section we've been looking at. Verses that you may likely be very familiar with, verses 8 and 9, which say, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And in this whole section, the Apostle Paul seems to be reminding us of the fact that before the Spirit of God came in and swept through our life, opening our eyes to the truth and pressing upon us the work of Christ that made us spiritually alive, before all that, we were like every other lost soul in this world, like everyone else out there, living their lives apart from the saving work of Christ, dead in their sins. That was us. We were them in the same boat. But God loved us and made us alive in Christ, and now we have a new life to live. And He did this by His grace, a unilateral gift, pure favor from God to us, all Him. And why all Him? So we're not tempted to take credit for our righteousness. So we can't boast in our choosing God. And it should be obvious, of course, but what should this evoke in us? You would think humility, right? And you would think it would evoke a spirit of compassion towards those who have not been saved. And yet so often when we see all the sin and brokenness in the world, when we see corruption, oppression, deception, and bad behavior being acted out all around us, we can so easily become shocked and appalled and respond to all of it with a spirit of judgmentalism, a self-righteous smugness, or a spirit of condemnation. Yet Paul's words remind us that those people who don't know and love God, those people who you may be upset about, that was you, spiritually speaking. That was you before God grabbed a hold of you. I can see Paul saying, get off your high horse. That was you. And when we see the world falling apart and people behaving badly, we should sit back and say, yep, actually that makes sense. Why would we expect anything else? And this feels important to me, and I feel like it it feels particularly important in these times we're living in as our society is becoming increasingly polarized and arrogance and self-righteous smugness abounds on all sides. But a condemning spirit will rarely draw people in. It usually just hardens the respective positions. I've always been struck by a comment made about Jesus in Matthew's gospel when he said, When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus saw people, people who were living their lives with no connection to God, people behaving badly, living inappropriately, he had compassion for them. All this scurrying around, all this bad acting, these people are confused and it makes sense. They have no shepherd to guide them. So my question for you today is, what would it look like for you to see the world with the eyes of Jesus, to see the world as a world that needs Jesus, a world full of people who could be an expression of his grace, who could be expressions of his kindness? So let's do a little thought experiment today would you just close your eyes with me and think about someone or maybe a group of people who you are really struggling with, people who are making you angry or frustrating you. Imagine yourself face-to-face with them right now. Imagine them looking into your eyes. Imagine them being able to perceive what you really think about them, how you feel about them. Now imagine them seeing compassion in your eyes, a spirit in you that telegraphs that you actually care about them and their well-being. What if they got a glimpse of that kind of posture from you? I wonder what could happen. So let's just take a moment today to bring this before the Lord right now in prayer, asking God to help you have a soft heart towards others, especially those that you're really struggling with right now. Lord, you and have been rich in mercy and grace to us. Help us to be rich in mercy and grace towards others. May we be people who are always mindful of who we were apart from your saving work in our life. And may that understanding make us humble people and people who work towards peace and reconciliation in this world by compassionately pointing people to you, the only true source of peace and reconciliation. May we excel in that, Father. Help us to excel in that. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
1: All these pieces broken and scattered, in mercy gathered, mended and whole, empty-handed, but not forsaken.
3: Well, we hope you have been encouraged today and we invite you to engage the questions that we provided immediately following this video. And let us leave
2: you with this benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and always. Amen.
3: Amen.